Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Adolescence. Boy, I sure don't miss that. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by The Beast with Two Bucks. For the cheapest, freshest human horn in the Milky Way, visit The Beast with Two Bucks. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a movie podcast where filmmakers analyze movies. We try to tear them apart and see why they're good or bad or what they're missing or what they do different. And that can range from anything from cinematography, the writing. Sometimes we talk about the acting and performances and why or how a character may get into a, to a position. There's certain things we haven't really talked about on acting. Like we haven't really touched on method acting, I feel like. But we do a lot of things like I... I write, I direct, I'm an actor, and you do like 50. Son of a bitch. <laughs> what? I just started What's hearing, happening? What, Wes? I just started hearing my phone ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and so for the audience right now, I am rushing to share our document that we both used ah. apparently. I wonder, how, wonder uh, how how many did I get? It had oh to be a God. good 15 or 20. And so for those not understanding at all what's happening. Um, <laughs> Which we, is everyone. Yeah, that's true. We have a Google Doc that we use to run our show notes. And that's a way for Todd and I to kind of coordinate and understand what part of the show we're on. Things that, I don't know, like the, the synopsis and the rundown and the, the faux sponsor and the quote at the end of the day. And it kind of tracks everything like we're going to do a spoiler alert here in a, here in a second and then i'll do my show run rundown and so we share this back and forth well we're supposed to i send it to todd after i make it and if he is, is unable to have complete 100 access to it he will request access and what will happen is todd will request <laughs> it as many times as he possibly can before i notice that he's requesting it and so right now i have 32 notifications from todd yes uh, i got well, in the 30s 32 emails from google saying todd sapio is requesting access <laughs> <laughs> It's my favorite thing of, about and I've life. Been so good. Like this is episode roughly 126 or exactly. And of those 126, I've probably done pretty well on like a hundred and I don't know, 15 of them. <laughs> and but it's, it's those, it's those 20 <laughs> that I live for those, those 20 times where you, you just forget. It's gotten to the point. Like every time I create a doc, I like, I rush. I don't do anything first. I don't do anything else. <laughs> I'm just rushing to to open the settings up so that you have access to it. That's and, so great. And it's like I have anxiety while I'm doing it. I'm like, don't let them win. <laughs> don't let them win. <laughs> so great. So oh, great. Fantastic. I'm happy that I waited until to access it until after we started. Because no one knows about the weird games that yeah, we play behind the scenes. Exactly. And you were busy. Your mind was somewhere else. <laughs> and I'm hearing like this ding ding. I'm thinking, is that Todd? I don't think anyone's emailing me. <gasps> and that's when <laughs> Todd. <laughs> he got me. I love it. Oh. I love it. Anyway, so what are yeah. we gonna do today? <laughs> Today we're covering Lady Bird, so if you haven't seen it, pause this episode, go watch it. 
and because we're gonna we're gonna have spoilers all over the place so absolutely we're gonna talk about a few things we'll touch on cinematography we'll talk about some of the lighting in there or at least what i think i'm seeing as well as communicating a feeling visually we'll talk about writing and story efficiency with locations because most of this we're starting a series this is the second and a probably going to be a an on and off series first time directors or at least early career directors for me to learn from as someone who's looking to make a movie in the not too distant decade. And so, yeah, we'll talk about all those things and other such stuff and things and stuff. All right. So a synopsis of the film in 2002, an artistically inclined 17 year old girl comes of age in Sacramento, California, written and directed by Greta Gerwig cinematography by Sam Levy starring Sorsha Ronan as Lady Bird, Laurie Metcalf as Marion or mom, Lucas Hedges as Danny, Timothy Chalamet as Kyle, Beanie Feldstein as Julie, and Odia Rush as Jenna Walton. I wish I could live through something. Aren't you? Nope. The only exciting thing about 2002 is that it's a palindrome. Okay, fine. Well, yours is the worst life of all, so you win. Oh, so now you're mad? No, it's because just you're I being ridiculous to to because music. you have a great life. I'm sorry, I'm not perfect. No one's asking you to be perfect. Just consider it. Would we'll do. I don't even want to go to school in this state anyway. I hate California. I want to go to the East Coast. Your dad and I will barely be able to afford in-state tuition. There are loans, Your brother, your very smart brother, he can't even find a job. He and Shelly work. They have they jobs. They bag at the grocery store. That is not a career. And they went to Berkeley. Your father's company is laying off people right and left. Did you even know that? No, of course you don't, because you don't think about anybody but yourself. An immaculate heart is already a luxury. Immaculate heart? You wanted that, not me. Miguel saw someone knifed in front of him at Sack High. Is that what you want? So you're telling me that you want to see somebody knifed he right in front of you. He barely right saw that. I want to go where culture is, like How New York. How in the world I raise such a Or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, really? where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom. You can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work or the or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Lady Bird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Lady Bird like Christine. you said you would. Just, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. Father. <laughs> the best opening to a film ever like, yeah it's so good and just a great way to end all this tension she just freaking jumps out the car and which is horrific and also because of her reaction suddenly becomes absolutely hysterical um, yes it's just pitch perfect god so is this your kind of movie i mean i i don't know i mean do you even like this movie is this something that you i don't know this kind of movie is this up your alley at all yeah so the yes and no i'm not a big coming of age mm. i think stuff you know movies like super bad and stuff just kind of like i don't know yeah. they, they don't really speak to me but this is more than that i, th I feel like yes it is a coming of age film but it's also about for for me i think i think because i'm my that is my mother in every way, shape and form. That is my mother. And I mean, what I grew up with, how I felt like how Lady Bird was talking to her is exactly how I wanted to talk to my mother, but I couldn't like, you know, like that's my mom. It's one thing. I think it's one thing if you're a daughter 
talking to your mother, you know, or a son talking to your dad or something. Maybe I, I don't know, but, but I just could, I couldn't talk to my mom like that, but I wanted to several times. So I identify with this movie very well, even though I don't really like coming of age films, the, the, the parts of the interactions with her mom were my favorite parts of the film, her, you know, montages of with her boyfriends and things like that. Like, you know, like whatever, like it was, yeah. they were fine. They were fine. And they, they, they were necessary because they pushed the story forward and, you know, they were big stages in her life. And, and there were one of my favorite moments in the film I'll talk about in a second involves one of them, but it was, it's a, it's an amazing film. The style, the kind of Wes Anderson-y almost kind of feel, not cinematography wise, you know, like it wasn't like straight up, like, you know, um, very symmetrical and and blocked off and everything. Not like that, but like the feel, I think the acting and the writing and the delivery was very Wes Anderson style. It felt that way. And I love that. I just love it. I feel like you could shoot that way and almost anything would work. It just, hmm. and I think it's because if you're shooting something that's, that's super serious and you're, you're filming it in a serious way. It's got to be delivered in a very specific way. But if you're shooting it the way they did, where there's a lot of locked off shots and people walk in and out of frame and lines are delivered and then delivered and then delivered, then it's kind of like anything goes. It could be a serious moment. It could be a funny moment. It, it, you know, the cinematography really doesn't tell you, doesn't dictate what that's going to be. Even the the script doesn't dictate what that's going to be. It just happens. It's almost like you're a fly on the wall kind of thing. And I love that style. I, I've seen this movie a couple of times and I just enjoy, I enjoy it. I enjoy every, every bit of it, really. My favorite moment in it is, is her, her, when her boyfriend turns out to be gay and then shows up at her work and um, they meet in the back alley where she's throwing the trash away. And he asks her not to tell anyone and he just starts weeping at like, I forgot about that moment yeah. and watching it again. I was like, Oh my gosh, it's so believable. That kid is such a great actor, the way he delivers that. And the, so it's not just the way he delivers it, but the timing of the line with the cry and holding her as tightly as he did. And it was almost like, there were moments where she wanted to let go, but he would not let her go. And I just feel like you can't, you can't teach that. Like that is, you either got something like that or you don't, um, or you identify with that character in that moment or you don't. And he just owned it. It was so good. And then her response was almost like immediately she went from, you know, she went from angry at him to just loving him, you know, and and being okay and it, it was just a with a flip of the switch it was just wonderful wonderful moment and then the moment at the end towards the end where she, the mom was driving and wouldn't speak to her at the driving her to the airport and then driving away and then realizing oh my god you know i know my mother went through stuff like that like with the stuff that's happened in my life and my sister's life in particular my mom absolutely went through that and just to, it kind of gave me a little insight into how my mom probably felt either when I moved away to LA or went to college or when my, my sister, um, went through the things that she went through. It was, it was probably very, 
not probably, it was definitely very hard for her and she didn't know how to deal with it because she'd never dealt with anything like that before. The way my mother was raised was very physical, right? Mm -hmm. And very verbally abusive from my grandmother in particular. And so she was that way with us a lot of times and not even like, yes, she would yell, but it was, it was more of like the way that this mom does where she just kind of says things and you're like, why the fuck would you say that? You're, you're not good enough. You're probably good. Not, you should just go to community college. Oh, you probably couldn't even get into that. Like, why would you say that ever to your child? Like that is a horrible thing to say, <clears throat> but the way that Sasha Ronan's character, that Lady Bird responds, wasn't with anger for that phrase, which tells me that she's probably said stuff like that a lot before. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so she just kind of like takes it as another thing that her mom says, like that sucks, man. I don't ever want to do that with my kids. Yeah, the whole time I was like, man. <laughs> I could see someone who didn't grow up with a mom like that thinking, oh my God, girl, just slap her and leave, you know, but growing up with a mom like that, I kind of know like you, what do you, you can't, you know, you can't, you just have to deal with it. And it was so funny because the dad was my dad. My dad was wow. the chill, cool, like, what do you need? You need five bucks for the movies? Cause back in those days, that's, you know, five bucks. <laughs> damn, I'm old. Yeah. All right. Cool. You go out with friends, stay out another half hour. That's fine. Or whatever. Like, you know, that was my dad. And, and so this was her dad. And it was just like, and my dad went through hard times about the same age that, that she did. It was like looking in a freaking mirror watching this movie. Yeah. It was super enjoyable. And I mean, not the same time frame. This for me, it was probably around like 95 to 98 where I was going through the same thing that she was, which is when I was in high school and she was in high coming out of high school in 2002. So it was around the same time, but not quite, but it's a, like, there were so many parallels with it. So it was super enjoyable. I loved it. I could watch it again now, you know? Yeah, I literally did. Yeah. I finished watching it to take my <laughs> notes and I was like, you know what? I got about another hour and a half to kill. So I'm, I put it back on. <laughs> I was like, I just watched it again so that I could actually that's, that's be hilarious. with it. Yeah. And yeah. what about you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'm a little bit on the opposite side in, in a lot of ways, actually. Like I definitely, I love coming of age stories. Not necessarily all of them. I, I I'm kind of with you on like a super bad style. I'm not a big comedy fan in general. Most comedies are kind of rinse repeat. And so I don't really connect with very many comedies as opposed to dramas like. And so there's yeah, there's a ton of coming of age stories that I love. And more often than not, I'm going to I'm probably going to like it, even if it's only kind of good. <laughs> like, I'll probably really enjoy it. I love that era for whatever reason. I just grew up loving them. I grew up, well, you know, watching like Stand By Me and all these movies of kids just trying to make it. And I guess I kind of identify with with that struggle. But on the other hand, like I didn't have a very overbearing mom, probably the exact opposite, although she could be critical. And it was one of those funny things that my mom could be critical. Not usually that wasn't her default with me. Very critical of my sister, though. Completely different dynamic. I wonder how what your sister would think of a movie like this. Oh, man, I bet she would. 
she's a she's a chatterbox as it is and so you know we wouldn't we literally wouldn't get a word in edgewise if, if oh, this would be another two and a half hour episode huh? yeah absolutely yeah and then we would just kind of fade out <laughs> we would just <laughs> just like start slowly. turning it down slowly yeah. <laughs> I love my sister, but I'm not even remotely exaggerating. That's funny. And so, but she did like my mom really like laid it on with her. And then as time kind of moved on, like, but there were things that my, I would say maybe my mom withheld. Like, I think parents have this one version of themselves in their head. And obviously kids have a different reality than what parents think they're doing. Because to my mom, she probably thought, you know, she gave me all the love and attention in the world, as opposed to I never heard my mom compliment me about anything like my entire life. I could probably hold it in one hand. And I remember having this conversation with her in high school because I was active. I was so active. I, you know, I was in every sport that I could play, you know, football, basketball, baseballs and band. I was in like not the math club, but the decathlon, octathlon, whatever that stuff was. I did that. Like I was all kinds of things, everything, more stuff. And then I worked on the side, et cetera, et cetera. And I never heard my mom say anything like that was encouraging about any of that. And I remember just having this moment where she, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember being in the kitchen and I was like, you never say anything kind. And she's like, I brag about you all the time. And I'm like, yeah, not to me. <laughs> like, it's I don't hear these things like whatever, you know, pride you're taking in me. I don't know about any of that. Like, it's so interesting. And I wonder, you know, how that'll evolve with you as you're, you know, raising your kids. And there's just these things that I'm looking at. Marion, Ladybird's mom, and I'm like, she probably doesn't know how she's perceived by her own daughter. Like, she in her mind might be thinking, I'm giving my daughter perspective, when in reality, her daughter's just feeling torn down the whole time. I, there's this really great moment, and you know, about two thirds of the way in, where Ladybird is talking with the counselor or one of her teachers, and the teacher says, Isn't that the same thing? You know, love and attention. And then we immediately cut to her mom who gives her a lot of attention and they're in the, and goodwill shopping for dresses. Mm -hmm. And she finds this dress. Ladybird finds this dress that she loves. And her mom immediately says, isn't it a little too pink? And they have this conversation about why can't, do you even like me? She's like, I love you. Like, nah, yeah, that's, but do you like me? And she never says yes. Right. She, she says, I just want to help you become the best version of yourself that you can be. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what if that's what I already am? <laughs> and we and just silence. That's it. It's like, wow. You know, you I, know, I, I, th- I think that some, some people, well, okay. Everybody parents differently. And I think that some people think I am guilty as a parent of, of thinking that I have to always be teaching my kids hmm. always. And so it's hard for me to remind myself to just enjoy their presence and let them be kids rather than teaching them in every single possible moment. Because when you look at them and they are a sponge, but they're, they're drifting, right? They don't have, you, you know, that life is hard. You know, that this world will beat them down if it can. And so as a parent, you're terrified that it will. And so like for me, and I think, probably for Ladybird's mom a little bit too. She's wanting to, in a way, and this is, she's not doing it right correctly, but in a way she just wants to her to like 
get it always to prepare her for the worst. The worst is you, you work your ass off and you have nothing to show for it. You have very little to show for it, very little money. And, you know, you wish things were different. You wish you would have made different decisions growing up. And so for her, it's a little bit out of fear of like being afraid that she's not teaching Lady Bird the correct things to make better decisions. Now, in order to do that, you have to, your kid has to want to listen to you for the first, for part of it. So I have to remind myself constantly, like, don't, don't always teach them, you know, just like let them like learn some things on their own. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that I hope that, you know, as a, as a parent that I can just help my kids make better decisions. I think that's, you know, they're going to go through all the same things that we went through. Yep. They're, they're going to, you know, have their first everything and, and do things they shouldn't do or, or what, you know, whatever, but understanding that they can come out of on the other side of it is a big thing. Understanding that it doesn't mean that they're bad, you know, these things, but that there are consequences to things that's important. The other, the other side of it is that some people think that you can't be your kid's friend. Hmm. I don't subscribe to that. I, I totally disagree with that a hundred percent. And I think that anybody that says that is just looking for a reason to exact power over their children. And I, I hate that. Amen. Now they're frustrating. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh my God. You've, you've been in my household during bedtime. It is a war. Pandemonium. It's an all out yeah. war. But at the same time, of course I'm their friend. Are you kidding me? I want my son when something goes wrong, when the, his first girlfriend dumps him or my daughter, when, you know, she like needs something and mom's not there to know that they can come to me, that if they want to tell me a secret, they can, you know, cause that's another thing. Like my parents, if I told my dad something in, in confidence or I told my mom something in confidence. It was never in confidence. They would always tell each other like Okay. So I'm not talking to you anymore, you know? So yeah, I want to be their friend hundred percent, like straight up friend. Like I'm your friend. Yeah. I want to be the same. It, you learn from me and I learn from you. Yep. Like it is a give and take. It's the same thing here. Like I don't, you know, want to ever be this kind of mom or this kind of parent. I want to be the kind of parent that does say that was stupid what you did. And this is why. And now here's the consequences but I would tell you the same thing if you did something stupid. Oh. So, and I would hope you would tell me the same thing. So yeah, what's, what's wrong with that? But she wasn't doing anything stupid. Absolutely. No. I mean, for there to be a good relationship, you need to be able to, you know, air a grievance and move on. Like that's so critical and it doesn't. And I think this is one of the, the things the world on average gets wrong. Like conflict doesn't mean like whenever, and, and I feel like this is kind of, demonstrated in the movie itself whenever she lies to jenna and jenna finds out and yeah. she asks her like you know and she says i forgive you i guess and i'm like okay or i accept your apology i guess ladybird asks her are we still friends i guess i mean well i'll see you around and basically no like that's yeah. a it was a soft no <laughs> yeah and 
it's it sucks because just because you go through one of those moments and we can see the opposite reflected from earlier in the film with the moment you talked about with her and Danny, like Danny lied to her. Danny broke her heart and she saw beyond that. She saw the reason why it happened and she forgave him and they became closer because of it. That became one of her you know, closest friends. And even though, you know, so resolution can bring more closeness, you know, instead of more separation, if you let it, if you're willing to forgive and say what's really on your heart. And then the the blessing comes after that as a result of it. And so I don't think you can have a really close relationship without conflict. If you do, you're you, you don't really have a relationship. You just have, you know, this superficial understanding with each other. I just don't think it's possible. And that's why whenever I'm, you know, dating someone, I, I, I'm waiting for a fight. Not because I want one, not because I'm going to create one, but because until you know how someone fights or how they resolve conflict, you don't really know who you're, who you're dealing with yet. And so those moments are really important. You can see how Lady Bird kind of deals with life as a result of the way of her relationship with her mom. And it's so good. It's so important that we find these little moments of her mom interacting with her husband, with the dad, because that gives us a, a, a whole other perspective of who she is. Because otherwise, without those moments, you just think her mom is like this complete narcissistic, you know, domineering parent, as opposed to there's there's more going on in her. She loves her she loves her dad, but there's these moments whenever we're watching her berate Ladybird, and the dad's in the room and he's like, Marion, you don't got to go there. And, and this is after we found out that her dad's dealing with depression. And so you start to see all these dynamics kind of at play at once. And you're like, well, that might be contributing, you know, to his anxiety and to his depression. It's not just about work. Sometimes it's, it's also about the inability to manage the relationships under, you know, in your own house. I, whenever I had roommates, I would, you know, do my best to maintain the relationships with everyone in that house. And I would be living sometimes with, you know, six other people, six, you know, other guys in the house. And that's, it's a lot of testosterone going on in one roof, but it was always important to me to spend a little time with everyone that week and in order to kind of maintain these relationships. And if any time we had an outsider that was in the house, that was creating conflict, I'd squash that shit very quickly because you're not going to bring that into my into my house, even though it wasn't my house. Like this is my relationships, though. And you, I'm not going to let anybody, you know, mess with my relationships. And so you could maybe feel some of that anxiety with the dad. And there was just so much going on. And especially with the men in this film, I found interesting because another one of the key men is the uh, the pastor or the uh, the priest who was, you know, the, the, the theater uh, teacher. And it's funny at first because, and it, I found that whole musical montage absolutely hysterical because it's an awful play. <laughs> and I mean, it, the, the reality is pretty much all plays are awful. Like I, I, if I ever have kids and if you're listening to this now and you make me go to your play, it's terrible. You were, you were bad. The play was bad. <laughs> and it's, it's not because I don't love you. <laughs> Just don't ask me afterwards. Like it's, it's all bad. Yeah. It's all, you know, it's high school. And so 
he after after that terrible montage and it's so great to watch everyone watching it and just that we're just getting these really awkward clips of them singing and snapping their fingers or whatever in the end right where they're all in their pajamas and they're singing into the distance oh it just slayed oh me oh my god and afterwards we're we're watching everyone react and uh everyone's kind of escaping in their own way and Julie sits next to the, the theater teacher and he's just slumped over and defeated. And he just says, oh, yeah, they didn't get it. And it's it, it tickled me like it was really, really funny because it's like, man, it was a bad high school play. Like, what are you expecting until like you fast forward in the next semester and he's not there. And we don't know why we're like, is he dead? Is what what what's going on? Because they won't they're not telling us. And then we we fast forward, you know, a few minutes later to find out. He's submitting himself into the psych ward to he's depressed and he's dealing with depression and we don't really know to what extent or why. And he feels bad. He's apologizing for it. Oh, heart rending. Yeah. Brutal. And so it's interesting, kind of this thing that's happening. I don't know if it's a Sacramento thing or or what she was trying to point at other than. Life is happening all around Lady Bird and she doesn't realize the things that that people are dealing with because to her life couldn't get any worse in Sacramento. And in and in reality, you know, she's not really participating in her own community. And that's also pointed out right at the beginning of the film. Right. She's unaware that there is even a theater group in the first place. And the counselor is like, well, perhaps you haven't always played an active part in this community. And, you know, she's just been judging it so much. And she continues throughout the entire film to judge it until she's not there anymore. And then we have this flashback of her remembering her drive. And she's just suddenly homesick for a place that she hated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She couldn't escape fast enough. Gravity couldn't have slingshotted her quickly enough out of that place. And it's such a beautiful sentiment and so true of childhood in general. Like we're all and I think that's kind of the point of the film is we're all so eager to escape childhood and then only to look back on it with our own rose colored glasses. Yeah, I would I would also extend it into just life in general. Hmm. I mean, the way that I want to choose to look at it is is just always like these are the days, man. Yeah, these are them. These are the good old days. So in five years, these will have been them. So live them like they are. And it's the same, you know, obviously when you're a kid, you don't have any worries or very few worries. And then you grow up and you have more, you know, it becomes easier to look at that as, as easier, but you're only going to have more the older you get. So just like be in it now. These are the, cause at some point you're going to move and go to another house and you're going to be like, Oh, remember when we had that house or you're going to get a different job. Oh, you remember that last, that last job that I had and that person that worked there? Oh yeah. They were really cool. You know, like there's always something that makes this moment better than the moment that you're going to be in later. Hmm. So, but then there's always some moment later that's going to be better than now or worse. doesn't matter, but you can't think about it. No, the yeah. present is all you really ever have. And you have yeah, and you don't even it. have that. Because yeah. the moment you think about it, it's the past. <laughs> so really, we're living in the past, if you want to think about it, in the past so or the future. Good. Whatever. Anyway. Wrinkling my brain. <laughs> yeah, so just to kind of touch on some 
some of the things. Cinematography, yeah. I don't want to misstate what you said earlier, but I like, you know, kind of the the way this was shot from a cinematography aspect. It feels very grounded. It feels real. So even when the the crazy, silly moments happen, it adds humor to it because, you know, when she's introducing herself to Jenna and she's like, what was your name again? She's like, Lady Bird. And Jenna just kind of pauses for a moment. That's weird. <laughs> she kind of continues. Like there's all these little weird moments that happen, especially with Kyle played by Timothy Chalamet. Mm. That dude is just full of oh my weird gosh. shit. Like it's so good. I've never seen him play a douche before. Uh, I feel like he nailed it though. <laughs> He's so, so good. But I think, yeah, the way it's shot really lends itself to, to kind of this grounded realism. And I feel like a lot of the lighting, maybe not all of it was practical. Maybe, you know, sometimes that's taking advantage of window lighting because sometimes I don't know how they would be hiding. And this is my ignorance of working on these kind of sets, but sometimes we're like looking out the window and we can see everything. So I'm like, I don't think they're really lighting that. So I feel like sometimes they're, they're shooting around available light which is always tricky as man, I shot a thing this weekend and the light shifted within minutes and completely changed the way I ended up shooting the rest of the project. And it, we were only on set for a few hours. So it wasn't like, you know, I had all day the next day. It's like, Oh, well, this is what we have now. And my day was wrecked, but the, the lighting here, you know, it seems like sometimes it's available lighting. Sometimes it's practical lighting. Like there was a moment after the dance she had her first kiss and she walks in the door and it feels like they just lit that with the lamp. Like they put on a pretty hot bulb and let most of that scene, if not almost in the entire scene, maybe they had some general ambient lighting just off off camera. But you walk in the door, you can track your shadow pretty closely with that lamp. It wasn't like sourcey from the standpoint of the, the lamp was providing motivation for another light off off camera. The light was coming from the, the lamp. And that's what you call practical lighting when the, the set itself is providing light. And so I'm like, yeah, I love that. I love seeing films like that. David O. Russell is big on that as well. And so I love seeing these kind of films that feel like, yes, this is the way I would want to shoot. This is the stuff that I feel comfortable and confident in. And it lends to the kind of style that I like. I like available lighting. I like that the grounded realism. I like truth and honesty. And I feel like when I see that in in and the lighting, it speaks to me personally. And so I, I tend to want to shoot my films that way, even though, you know, I'm not above breaking out a light, you know, but whenever I think about the, the projects I want to create or work on, it's usually around available light or, or practicals at a minimum. And there's one shot that I would want to pick her brain about. And it's this twilight shot on the bridge with her best friend, Julie. And it had to have been shot in like one, maybe two takes max because they were literally shooting at twilight and, and twilight doesn't last for more than like 20 minutes. You, it goes from golden hour to twilight to dark so fast that that window right there is seriously, seriously fast. Depending on the time of year, it can go faster. I guess if you're in Alaska, it could last a little longer, but those, those moments are really, really hard. And they they shot it with multiple cameras and all things considered a really amazing job, except for I'm assuming something went wrong with the sound there because they ADR that scene. And it was the only ADR I, I noticed in mm -hmm. the film. And it was it was pretty rough. It was not yeah. great. Yeah. And I always find it interesting whenever I noticed ADR. <laughs> 
because there's times when it they're they're doing it and I don't know. I know those moments happen. It, there's just too many times in movies where sound goes to hell, like a plane passed overhead and your best take and you have to make a decision. Do I use my best take or do I pick a lesser take with better audio? And I'm usually going to err on the side of the better emotional take, the better performance. And so but all things considered, like really incredible job for shooting at Twilight. There is a movie Terrence Malick made called Days of Heaven, where he shot that almost that entire movie was shot during like golden hour and twilight. Uh, and it's beautiful, but it, it cost him like two years. <laughs> and it's oh my God. Yeah, I, it wasn't supposed to last that long, but that's what happens when you want to build around something like that. So kudos to you, Greta Gerwig, because that's amazing. The as far as cinematography, like communicating a feeling, this is something we've touched on a handful of times. Like it's not the most complicated thing in the world for her. We communicate a couple of times the idea that she has a crush and there's it's very simple, this kind of progression of the shots. And so this is a combination of editing and cinematography. We start with a two shot of Lady Bird and Julie, and then we cut to a close up on her love interest. And then we cut to a close up on Lady Bird and then we hold and then maybe we dial the music down a notch. We maybe dial the music up and the ambient audio down to kind of play in this emotionality. And we just kind of watch her as she's watching him. And that's perfect. Like we see that twice with Danny, right? When he's auditioning. And that's the time when they do kind of lower the, the ambient audio and raise the music. And then another time whenever she's watching Kyle as he plays guitar in a band. And there the music is already up. So we don't there's no audio adjustment there. We just kind of watch her watching him and it's perfect. We know, understand exactly what's happening. Even if she didn't do anything in her performance, we would automatically have this emotional feeling like, Oh, she's feeling mm. that. But Sorsha being Sorsha, like she delivers a performance that adds to it and that you can feel her heart skipping a beat just through her performance. It's she's, she's magical for sure. But that's a, that's a moment that's really easy to overdo as an actor. Yeah. She's very subtle in that. Yeah, so. no, that's absolutely accurate. I thought the music was interesting. I, because this is set in 2002, but most of the music was from the mid nineties. And I found, mm. I, I just find that really entertaining. Like you have bone thugs, you have Alanis Morissette, and then you have a lot of Dave Matthews. I mean, we probably hear him mm -hmm. three or four times. And at one time, at one point after, right after she finds out that, her, you know, her boyfriend is actually gay, they're in the car and they're both <laughs> kind of crying. Crash. Yeah. Into, Into me. Yeah. So good. It's so yeah, good. Yeah. Like, I love that. Yeah. I don't know. Did you have a, a, an opinion or thought on the music as you were watching it? Yeah, no, it was, it was spot on. I mean... Can you tell me a song that came out in 2002? No, Probably but you can tell not. me a lot of stuff that came out in mid to late nineties. Oh yeah. <laughs> all of that. So yeah, absolutely. You stick with what people would know. And you know, it's, that's like listening to an album that came out in 2015. Hmm. Sure. Absolutely. I would do that. You know? Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. No, I loved it. I loved it. I loved the use of Dave Matthews all over the place. It's great. Are you a DMB guy? Is that what you call Absolutely. Them? Yeah. Nice. I am an old one, like the old stuff. Like I've always know, heard that like his first album and... is supposed to be like the the best. Is that... Well, like his first three. Oh, wow. Or just, yeah, Under the Table and Dreaming, Before These Crowded Streets. And then there's one other one that's really fantastic full band. But then he and this guy, 
named Tim Reynolds, who like he plays with a lot. And sometimes Tim will tour with him. Tim is, I mean, you think Dave is a good acoustic guitar player. Tim, Tim melts him, melts him is amazing. They had a, a double disc album. It was Dave and Tim Reynolds live at Luther College. And it's just that both of them with acoustic guitars. And it is unbelievable, dude. They do all his hits and then a bunch of other stuff that you never heard of before. I mean, the thing that makes Dave amazing is his ability to play what he's playing and sing at the same time. I mean, he plays stuff that one is, is very difficult to play, but to play that and sing something that is a completely different cadence Hmm. at the same time is like, uh, it's just unreal. So a lot of rhythm happening all at once. Anyway. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an old school Dave fan. The stuff that, you know, he came out with in like late, like mid two thousands or I'm not really a big fan of anything from to mid two thousands on it, I think the last good thing that, that I liked that he put out was around 2000. I think mm. he, that's when the Luther college disc came out. I think, I don't know, something like that. That's all I'm a, I love acoustic. Yeah. And so I'll be checking that out. We'll put that in the show notes. We'll link it. To, so everyone can, can check it out. Nice. So diving into some of the writing and story, there's some efficiency that they use. I really enjoyed with using certain locations kind of repeatedly, like the house became a, a, you know, very reused place. So it's nice whenever you have these kinds of things, because you can go in and set up all your lighting. Like if you wanted to do practical, you only got to do it once you, you walk it out with your, your set designer and you say, here's kind of the times of day we're going to be shooting. Here's the, the rooms we're going to be shooting in. You know, how can we build lighting into the set? And then you're kind of one and done. You don't have to spend every time because without that, if you're shooting, you know, 10 scenes in a house, then that's 10 scenes. You don't you only got to think about lighting it maybe once as opposed to if those 10 scenes took place over 10 different locations. And suddenly you're having to game plan and track and figure out lighting scenarios over and over and over and over again. So there's some really great efficiency there as well as like, I really love the use of the, the store location at uh, mostly in the beginning because like her brother works there and then her sister, I guess works there. And it's a great place to reveal all kinds of things. They reveal some of the money issues, right? We can't afford a magazine. <laughs> like go, you know, uh, and it also reveals conflict with her mom. Go to the library or whatever. Like she's just not having it. She not only is she not going to buy it, she doesn't even care. <laughs> like just whatever. And it's also a place where she runs into her crush, right? And because of all the other things that are happening in the store, she's able to immediately run to interact with her brother and ask him like, who is Jim Morrison again? And this gives us so much feedback. We learn so much about all these characters all at once because now we can see who she is and what she wants and also how she's going to go about getting it, which is lying or uh, pretending to be someone that she's not. And this whole movie is about her pretending to be someone that she's not right. Even her name, Ladybird, isn't her name. Like she is just so uncomfortable being in her own skin and that's it's a growing process. And even at the end of the movie, when you right when you think she's finally coming into her own, right, whenever she's meeting this guy at a party and he's like, what's your name? She's like, Christine. And he's like, oh, where are you from, Christine? Sacramento. What? 
San Francisco. <laughs> like she still isn't hundred percent, you know, comfortable in her own skin yet, but she's working on it. And that's kind of this really beautiful moment that, that reveals. And so, yeah, I like the, the use of the store location as like, let's tie in a bunch of kind of exposition and uh, character building all in one place that gives us uh, an opportunity to maximize this one spot so that maybe if they had it for a day, they could shoot, you know, three or four scenes there and get out. Like now we've only had to spend, you know, 20 grand on this location instead of, you know, a hundred grand trying to shoot it over the course of a week. Let's compact and, con and condense all these ideas and scenes into one location. So really smart writing on her part in order to maximize budget and, and story at the same time. That's, that's just brilliant to me. And something that I take away whenever I'm thinking about writing and like, how can I, you know, maximize very little now she, she she wasn't exactly making this out of credit card money like she she had the 10 million dollar budget so but there's still a lot that you can emulate because there's nothing in the story that necessarily means i would need that amount of money to accomplish it outside of, i and i would bet man i i i would love to see what the line items are on this thing but i would bet she spent so much money on like extras and the school location there's so many scenes with packed auditoriums and packed classrooms and that that just begins to very quickly eat away at your budget. And so I'd be mm -hmm. curious how she tried to maximize that or what the producers did to to help negotiate some of that stuff away, because that would be a very challenging part of that, uh, being a line producer on this film. And a line producer is just kind of in charge of working through the budget in the script. And so there is uh, some other things that I love. I love the, the quick scenes. It really helps us give a scale to the world. It adds a lot to the story without belaboring the audience. So, for instance, uh, at the beginning, you know, the clip that we played, she jumps off the car. We cut to putting on a cast and we, don't, we never really see the cast go on. It's just kind of suddenly there. Like we immediately see how they resolve that moment of her jumping out of the car. What happened? Oh, she broke her arm. She's fine. Like that's very quick, easy storytelling. And it gives us a really big sense of uh, scale to the world. And then even later on in the school year, whenever she gets it taken off, that's like maybe two or three seconds worth. Like we see a shot of her in the doctor's office, a, a shot of the, the buzz saw, whatever, you know, like cutting off the cast and then it's in the trash and then we're moving on. Like we don't dwell on that at all, but it's very, very quick. And yet it gives you, a story in your head of everything that's happening. And so it's, it's just incredible because that, that might be the kind of thing that's very tempting to take and turn into like a, a two minute scene. It's like, Oh, well, we're there. Let's, let's, let's maximize this, this moment. And so I love wasteful moments like that. Like personally, I really, really love it. I love trying to create those or look for those moments in my own films. There's scenes where I'll, I'll, yeah, we're, we're here for four seconds and then we're moving on and it, makes it feel like there's a world there's an entire world out there and if all you ever do is have these five ten minute scenes just because you're afraid of all the work and effort that goes into shooting one of these four second scenes then it's your your world is going to feel much much smaller than you wanted to there was a our first short film that we made together off of zombies we i wrote like this 10 second bit in there and it took us as much time to film that 10 second bit as it did to film the rest of the entire five, six minute short. Like it was a, a montage of the zombie apocalypse itself. 
Like, and we spent half a day shooting it <laughs> because we had to go and get people and makeup and zombie makeup. And it took so much time, but it was so worth it because I really want to give this sense of scale and also the humor behind it. Because normally in a zombie film, you spend all this time with the zombies eating people's faces. And I wanted to, to the character to kind of play that off. Like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of happened. We're sweeping that under the rug. And instead of, you know, making that, you know, this 10 minute thing, like, Oh no, we're only going to spend 10 seconds. We're going to see the absolute worst of the worst. And then we're going to act like it didn't happen. Like, it's just, I love that kind of stuff. And so when I'm seeing Greta Gerwig just fly through some of these scenes, I really love that because it's it's world building and it's giving you a sense of like we don't have to dwell on everything. And now you have to start filling in the gaps as the audience member. You have to start projecting your own thoughts and opinions and feelings into these characters that you otherwise wouldn't like they she gives us so much opportunity to think for ourselves and that's one thing that you and i harp on all the time stop spoon feeding me let me think and let me ask questions and make me you know wonder before you tell me the answer she's just incredible like this doesn't feel like a 90 minute movie it's 90 minutes and it feels like a two and a, like a two plus hour movie but because of how many scenes she works through this could have easily have been a two and a half hour movie if she had actually fleshed out more of these moments, but that's so much discipline and just great, great writing. And I absolutely love her for it. Yeah. Which you should put that off the of zombies in the show notes. Yeah. I'll link it in the show notes so that yeah. anyone who hasn't seen it and wants to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sean's scream at the end of that <laughs> scene. is just the best. Literally uh, the best. Yeah. I had to work through it because he kept wanting to do like a different kind of yell. And I was like, no, no, no. Like cry to the heavens. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I get what you like, That's it. And I think we did okay. like two or three takes. Like I, once I have it in the can, it's in the can. I'm, I'm moving on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he is the he's the best part of the entire film. In my he opinion. really is. <laughs> he really is. Oh my gosh. And so I guess the the last part I feel like we've we've kind of already touched on it, which is that this whole movie is about her trying to figure out who she is. One of the things that I, I found really interesting was she doesn't really ever voice her own opinion unless it's with her mom. That's the only time she actually is who she is. Every other time she's putting on a facade and she's wanting really hard to be liked. I guess maybe with her bestie, with Julie, you know, you get a sense that, yeah, she's being herself right now, which makes it all the more heartbreaking when she's trying to be Jenna's friend because Jenna doesn't know who she is at all. And her best friend and her mom are really the only two people that are her tribe. And yet she can't get acceptance or feel like she gets acceptance from her mom and she fights for it. And that's the, that's the really uh, endearing part of this movie is she doesn't just resent her mom. She's mm -hmm. actually trying to establish a friendship with her mom that her mom just will not recognize or submit to. And God, Lori Metcalf was such an inspired casting for the mom you don't see her ever really get these opportunities. Like I don't, she's been steady working since her days on Roseanne, you know, but she, when was the last time she got, you know, an opportunity to work in something that would be Oscar worthy. And this movie was all over the Oscars, like a lot of nominations, you know, it was up for best picture and God, she just, 
absolutely carried it. And I love all, all the kind of overlapping dialogue in that opening scene. They're just fighting with each other and they're both actually still hearing what, I don't know if mom is actually hearing what the daughter's saying, but the daughter's talking over yet also digesting what her mom's yelling at her. Yeah. And so there's this really interesting dynamic that, you know, we, we touched on already, but between her and her mom, and you can feel this kind of wrestling match the entire way through that you want them to recognize each other. And even at the end, you finally get a brief moment because it doesn't look like you're going to get a moment where Ladybird ever really understands that her mom really does love her because she has that breakdown. But the daughter never sees that. Just the dad. And the dad is like, ah. you know, you can feel him like she know, she'll be back. She'll be back. You'll have an opportunity. And you're just kind of I am identifying with the dad because I'm like, God, I bet he's just wishing like, why couldn't you do that when she was here? And yet we get that satisfying moment when she opens the letters, the abandoned letters, right? Mm -hmm. Just these half written things. And she gets on the phone with her dad, who's once again, negotiating these between these two. And he's like, don't let her know that I savaged, salvaged them from the trash can. Um, she, yeah. she just was worried that you would judge her writing. Her mom is worried about how her daughter was perceiving her the whole time. So good. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful, heartbreaking story. Some people don't know how to how to convey love properly. They have, you know, they're too broken from their own experience, their own past with it, with people who are supposed to love them the most. And so they learn the wrong things from the the wrong the, or the right people. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's, it's like, you just, I, I mean, I, I tell my kids literally probably 50 times a day that I love them. I, I, I can't say it enough. And, and that, Oh, this thing you did was wonderful. I can't say it enough, but I mean it every single time. I mean it. And I want them to know that. And if they do something that's not wonderful, I mean, I don't tear them down, but I don't blow smoke up their ass either. You know, like I'm going to be totally honest with them. I just wished that the whole time I was like, man, I just wish that one time she'll give Ladybird something because yes, people parent differently. And I, I totally get that she wants to harden her, her daughter and make her ready for the world. And, and, you know, as a, as a dad, I can't, I can't have, I don't have an opinion on how a mother should raise a daughter and I won't give one because raising a daughter is totally different than raising a son. And I have a daughter, but I can, I do what I can with her, but I, I also leave a lot of like, you know, the stuff that's going to happen during her coming of age to my wife, because that's more that that should be between them. She just to, to be honest, I feel like she, as a mom, she fails. Like you have so many opportunities your daughter is reaching out to you, like you said, reaching out to you constantly, even though you, you don't accept it constantly. She just keeps reaching out and you just slapping her hand away. She totally fails, totally fails. And so the whole time I'm like feeling just so angsty, uh, you know, wanting her to just give Ladybird something, yeah. give her some kind of sign that you either hear her desire to go to college on the East Coast or you see her trying, joining the the play, you know, all these things. Like, it's just, 
you get you get nothing. No wonder Lady Bird wants to leave. Like she's freaking miserable. Of course, I would be too if my mom was was like that my whole life. She wasn't. She was mostly like that, you know, from when I was ten on. But but like it 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 never happens. And so, but then when she leaves and then sees the letters and realizes, you know, what her mom was trying to do, she I think gets it. She doesn't fully forgive is the wrong term, but she, she doesn't fully understand why her mom was that way. I don't think, mm-hmm. but she does understand the intent behind why her mom yeah, like would do something like that. Yeah. It's heartbreaking, but it's also beautiful and funny at the same time. And, and one thing I wanted to, to address that you mentioned earlier was the, the men in this, there's not really a good one. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. Cause of. her, all her relationships with men are, are pretty difficult. She, she picks like a guy to date that is gay and breaks her heart. And then she, the next guy she picks lies about, you know, being a virgin and then lies about not lying about, you know, being yeah. a virgin after, you know, he takes her virginity. And I love her response to that. Who has sex on top for the first time? Like that's, yeah. Uh, she was just so angry all of a sudden. And it's, it's obviously well-deserved. And then, yeah, like she obviously loves her dad and her dad loves her, but he's struggling too. In life, he's just, ha- he's, ha- he's having a bad patch. And man, there's that moment right before that fight breaks out where he's on the computer playing solitaire and like mm-hmm. the mom rips into him. She's like, what are you doing on you know, the computer? He's like, nothing. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Just, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. But you're, you're, but he's depressed, you know, yeah. like, and yeah. then, the, and I wonder, I wonder if there's something behind that. Yeah. I wonder too. With, with like Greta. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because this feels semi-autobiographical. Obviously, it can't be a straight autobiography, but she she grew up in Sacramento and she probably was graduating high school right around that time. So this feels very much and I've heard her talk about it and I'll link in the show notes. It's just been so long that I can't remember all the amazing insight that she she gave on this movie. I remember more about her her discussion on adapting Little Women, which is also a good episode that everyone should go watch and listen to yeah this feels very much like she's telling her story in her own way and you know embellishing in some ways but yeah i yeah she she actually went to school with my wife i think we mentioned that on little women she went to columbia and at the same time that my wife was there and my my wife doesn't know her right like they just went to the same school but just when uh, I thought knowing Jenny was going to pay off. God. Yeah, right. I guess. Um, but it is interesting because when Lady Bird gets the the college letters, the first letter she looks at is from Columbia University and she doesn't get in. Ah, in the movie, she doesn't get in. Yeah. But in reality, I guess she does, whatever. <laughs> but she does get in an East Coast True. university. So she does travel the East Coast still. But anyway. Just a little, nice. little information there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's pretty much all I got. I, yeah, I, me too. I, I enjoyed this. I, I feel like I learned a lot. And if nothing else, I felt it feels good seeing someone kind of tell the stories that I, I kind of want to tell. Maybe not. I, I don't know if I'll ever want to create a, a coming of age. I think I like watching them more than trying to, to tell them. And I don't think yeah. anybody would want to watch my coming of age. It, it's really messy. And... Sometimes that's good. Yeah. 
you know, it's funny because watching this, I, I started having this thought of, I wonder how comfortable it is for her to kind of bring her personal life into her work. I find it very difficult. Like it's hard for me to talk about the, my childhood and my, the way I grew up and things that, you know, I experienced as a kid, because I feel like in order to do so, I kind of have to throw a lot of people under the bus. Like I love my family so much. And yet, you know, there was just so many really difficult things, you know, that would, would not necessarily reflect well on them. And, and I I had this really huge wrestling match because on the one hand, I don't want to hurt anybody in my life. But on the other hand, this is also my story. Like I absolutely have every right to tell my story and I don't really know how to reconcile that. And so I don't know if I, so to me, it's just much easier to tell brand new stories. Like I can find identifiable moments and threads and, and just use that as inspiration to tell something completely different. You know, you should, um, you should talk to Jenny because she's Mm. writing a memoir right now. And one of the, and that's her major concern is there's some damning shit in there. You know, you can write things and call it fiction. You don't have to call it you know, nonfiction. Yeah. I think, so just to use an example, when I was in college, my whole life, so I'm adopted, my whole life I thought, what would it be like to meet my birth mother, be, meet my birth father? But I always put it off. I was like, no, no, no. And then I decided in college I was going to do it. And then I decided, no, I said, I'm going to do it when it's all I can think about, when I can't get it out of my mind, when it would, it bothers me enough to make the effort and pay the money to do it. So, and that's when I did it and I felt like it was the right time. So I think the same thing with Jenny and I told her, I was like, don't write this until you feel like you can't not, then that's Mm -hmm. the right time to write it. So you might not have never, you might never have that moment. You might just be okay with this is how it was and that's fine. Or you might be 60 and you know what? I, this has to happen right now. And, you know, there's no reason to force it and write some, write it when you could, eh, I'm not really feeling it, you know, or like, eh, it's not really necessary. Like that's such a personal thing, you know, writing about your past and your, how you grew up and, and the things you went through that you can't think about hurting people, but you still, you still are going to. Yeah. So like, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Well, if it's not really something that's like super pressing on your heart to do, Maybe it's not really worth it, but th- that's just something that like we've had plenty of conversation about in her writings and stuff. And so, hmm. may, you know, I bet Greta had a, I-, I would be interested to see what her mother thought of this movie. Yeah. But, you know, it might not be an apples to apples. Like you said, it might not be an apples to apples, you know, like comparison of her own life. But I'll bet there's a lot <laughs> that is very accurate about it's just too spot on, you know, specific of a performance. That's right. That's right. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you going to recommend this week? I'm glad I went first this week. I'm going to recommend Netflix show called Queens, the Queens Gambit. I've been asking for quality like this from Netflix for a very long time. I've thought, especially this year, you know, with theaters being empty and uh, no movies coming out uh, like the impetus has been on on streaming services like Netflix to up your game you know put out good quality cinematic well-written shows or films and so many times they have fallen flat and 
been like, okay, that's an, that's interesting, but it's not shot well, or it's shot well, but the acting is a little, eh, or the directing is, eh, or that's not really, really like theater quality, you know, like I'm looking, I'm sorry, but I'm looking for theater quality because I don't have a theater to go to. And I feel like, I mean, there are some things in this show that, that are not, are not theater caliber. They didn't do the entire show like perfectly, but the the writing is fantastic the acting is superb the directing is also wonderful and it's about chess i mean how can you not yeah. you know be excited about that yeah, yeah definitely worth the time queen's I, gambit i don't think i've seen a bad chess movie i've seen a lot of movies good and, point and i i feel like every chess movie i've ever seen which is funny because there's no way to communicate chess like yeah there, i've never watched a chess movie and understood what tactically was actually happening ever yep you know yep. and so the that just begs the question of what makes it so compelling and and for that y'all should listen to todd and go watch the queen's gambit <laughs> so i am going to recommend it, this was a hard you know because there i almost went down more mother-daughter movies because there's i feel like there's more there's not enough movies like this that kind of address that dynamic. Instead, I went with a, uh, a different kind of family dynamic that I think is a excellent movie that got way underappreciated when it came out. It's a movie called the skeleton twins. I think it might be streaming on Hulu right now, but it's absolutely excellent. It's got Kristen Wiig and I think David Hyder or Bill Hyder. Sorry, Bill Hader. Bill Hyder. And Hader. they are both absolutely excellent. It's a great story. And tonally, I think people would identify it with Lady Bird. So if, if you want something that, you know, is going to speak to you, that's going to make you laugh and surprise you and, and make you cry, like go watch the Skeleton Twins. We'll link both of these in the show notes as always. Stay tuned. Next week, we are going to continue down this uh, this rabbit hole of first time or uh, early directing, especially I'm, I'm really wanting to stick you know for a while at least with uh, writer directors because you know that's me and so we're going to tackle once i know todd is traditionally a big fan of this movie we'll see if you still like it i i assume yeah. you probably haven't watched it in a while i haven't and so that'll be interesting just to see if it if it holds as well as the first time you watched it it's a irish movie and it's probably streaming somewhere i, I want to say it's on hbo max right now and so check the, the show notes. We'll, we'll link you with uh, where you can watch it there. Yeah. After that, actually, we're going to do two back to back Christopher Nolan movies. And it, for the astute, you will be able to pick out exactly which two movies they are and why they would be included in the series. And so stay tuned for that. I'm really excited. One of them is a, is a request from Izzy, who right. is the damn best shout out buddy. Yes, he is. And so don't forget, subscribe, review us, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us on or YouTube, I guess, smash that like or whatever they, they say every week. You went there. I went there. Uh, awesome. And so if you want to leave a comment on this episode in particular you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash ladybird and our quote of the day today is from alanis morissette and this is interesting because also there's another version of this quote from jim carrey who says it a little differently but it's i wish people could achieve what they think would bring them happiness in order for them to realize that that's not really what happiness is jim carrey said something like i wish that everyone could be famous 
so that they would understand that that doesn't bring them happiness. Wow. Because everybody wants to be famous, right? Yeah. Or a lot of people do. Yeah. And this is, this is uh, fantastic. Why'd you pick this one? So, yeah, I was just thinking about how this movie ends with Lady Bird finally getting her wish, right? She moves out to New York and she kind of achieves her dream of escaping, you know, the, the gravity of Sacramento and her mom more specifically. And yet, you know, she, you can feel a little bit of loneliness and, and, and yearning for, for familiarity of home. And that's something I think we all experience. We all experience this need to explore and go find something. And ultimately, uh, it's usually not what we want it to be. And there's a growing pain of, of living somewhere that isn't home. And then for me, I really identify with that quote and this idea in, in large part because growing up, I thought I really wanted to work in an office and I wanted to, you know, have an important job and and re- have people reporting to me or me reporting to people who are important. And I, I got that and I, it ran dry very quickly for me. I'm like, you know what, this is not actually what I want at all. I feel like I am dying and I want to be a creator. I want to go create things. And I didn't know at the time exactly what it was going to be, but could not be happier with abandoning what I thought my version of happiness would be. And so, yeah. What is it? What What do you think whenever you think of like the idea of the fame or, you know, achieving what you think happiness is? Um, I just, I think of the, about what I said earlier, that now, right now, hmm. This moment, you're not dead. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to say, just be happy. I'm not saying that like it's it's easy to just be happy, but you know, the idea of of looking to tomorrow to bring you more joy is. I mean, I've been very guilty of it throughout my life. I like to think over the last you know ten years or so, I've gotten better at realizing that even in moments of suckiness, there is joy of the experience of it and trying to relish in that because it's never, I mean, yeah, it's never about the destination. It's always about the journey. We've talked about that so many times in this podcast. And I think that honestly, it should be the theme of this podcast, because if you think about it, like we're talking about creation, And the idea of creation is not the completion of the created. It is the actual creation, the process of it, the process of learning during it, the process of failing during it, of being successful, right? But being, you're only as successful as your next project, right? You can make a movie that wins an Oscar, but if your next one falls flat, I mean, what good is that Oscar? You know, so it's really about continually growing and striving to do, to do your best, whatever that might be. And if you're not present for it, and I'm so guilty of this man, like even now I'm, I'm building a studio in my backyard and it is like so tedious and it is so like laborious. One of the hardest things I've done in a long time, but it is, I'm trying to enjoy the process Mm. and because I know that when it's done, I will never do this again. (laughs) Never. So because I know that trying to enjoy the process of it so that when, when it's done, I can just, you know, be in it and create in it and, and build something else. 
right? Mm -hmm. Moving forward. So yeah, this is, this is such a great quote. Like some of the best minds on the planet think this way. Steve Jobs thought this way. Elon Musk thinks this way. It just is the way that most happy people or most content people, I should say, not happy, but most content people live their life. And you can be content and still be driven. Yeah. Contentment doesn't mean that you're, you're sitting in your success yeah. or failure. It, it just means that you are present for whatever it is you're experiencing, whether that's pain and anguish, whether that's happiness or joy or whatever. And I, when I started writing music again, it was with no, no desire to, of anything. It was literally just because I wanted to do it. And then I started having some success. I mean, that's the same reason why you left your job. Like you, you know, you left your job. You, I remember the day you told me that you were going to buy a camera. And I, I will regret my answer for the longest time because my answer was to you. And I would never today. I was, a, I was young and dumb, but today I would never say this to somebody. I said, really? Why? And it, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, what a dick thing to say. Like not, not cause I, how could I have known that it was going to be turn into something that was like your I, massive passion, your yeah, life, you know? I didn't know. So obviously you, I know, Yeah, yeah. I know, but like it was, that was my father speaking. My father speaking would say, you know, would say, stay in the safety zone. If you don't have that much money or you're going to leave your job, why would you spend $1,500 on a camera? You know, like all of the, all these things. And now I'm, you really, you want to buy a, a, a yacht and sail, dude, uh, <laughs> absolutely. I'll, I'll buy you a hat, you know, like definitely go for it. Anyway, I, I kind of digress. I just love this quote so much and, and everything that it means and stands for. Obviously, it's easy for someone who has success to say that. I don't have any success and I'm saying that to everybody listening. Yeah. So hopefully somebody hears it that needs to hear it because it's it's fantastic. Now. So nice. Anyway, thank you guys so much for joining us. I think we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, like Wes said earlier, make sure to leave a review, subscribe, tell us what you want us to do. If you tell us a movie, we'll probably cover it. Let's just let's just be honest. And join us next week where we'll be uh, covering Once, and it is streaming on HBO Max, nice. by the way. So so check that out beforehand. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.